Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's platinum sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Kun Yonker, Executive Chairman and Co-Founder of Time, a digital banking business operating in South Africa and Philippines. Time's flagship project is Time Bank in South Africa, which was launched in February 2019 and has since grown to over 3 million customers just over two years later. An incredible growth. In this episode, we discuss Kuhn's background and why he's always been interested in the transformative potential of business for economic inclusion, the idea behind Time Bank, and why Kuhn and his co-founders decided to launch banking solutions for the unbanked in South Africa, why they decided to launch a hybrid model integrating the digital bank into retail environments, scaling to 3 million clients in just over two years, stories from a tough fundraising journey and how their largest shareholder came to be a group of ordinary citizens and community groups in South Africa, international expansion, working with financial regulators, entrepreneurial lessons for founders in emerging markets, and just a whole lot more. And now I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kuhn Yonker. Well, Kuhn, thank you for joining us on the Wartum Fintech podcast. Uh, how are you doing today? Miguel, very well. Lovely to speak to you. And where are you joining us from? Today I'm in Johannesburg in South Africa, but home for me and the family is in Singapore. Very nice. And I will be talking more about both of those uh, cities and, and countries. Great. So let's get started by, by hearing a bit about your story and a bit about the road that uh, brought you to your current role. Miguel, where does one start with these stories? Um, I think maybe start by saying that I started my career as a human rights lawyer, practiced law for about a decade and ended up running a law firm here in Africa. But my interest in life has always been around these patterns in society that we take for granted and whether, you know, is that the way things should be or can be and are there ways to change these things? So I ended up getting really interested in the transformative potential of business, particularly around the theme of economic inclusion, because what I saw was that you know, in South Africa, we uh, got democracy in 1994. Politically, the world changed, but it didn't really change economically for people. Uh, the poor people were still poor. People who didn't have access to housing finance still didn't have access to housing finance. And so I would say most of my career has been uh, dedicated to this question. Can the private sector in particular play a meaningful role in transforming economies and in helping people unleash their true potential by giving people, particularly poorer people, the opportunities that you and I take for granted as people who are privileged and, and educated and have access to all the tools that the modern economy gives them. And, and, and what do you think is the answer? Can it? 
I think there are enough examples in the world where, um, where business is starting to play a more transformative role and are really opening up markets. I think the obvious example is the extent to which mobile telecoms, mobile phones, and the internet have changed lives and have transformed people's lives. And then there are all sorts of really interesting, exciting ways in which we see that basic infrastructure of the internet, mobile telephony, increasingly the internet of things, is getting mobilized by entrepreneurs to actually change people's lives in a meaningful way, whether that is helping farmers trade their commodities directly on markets and not be at the mercy of middlemen, whether that is people having access to off-grid electricity through pay-as-you-go solar panels, or whether that is just people getting you know, bank accounts uh, and access to being able to borrow money that wouldn't otherwise have had that access. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because a topic on this podcast throughout the last year has been the rise of ESG factors. And a lot of the founders that come to the show mention how that is increasingly important to them, right? Doing business in a responsible way, right? And I think that's uh, interesting you mentioned it because you're trying to also do your part, right? And, and you're trying to provide banking services to the unbanked population. Right. So maybe you can illustrate a little bit of how you landed on the idea and on the role to launch Time Bank. Yes. So the idea of Time Bank started in the South African economy, where we have an oligopoly of five big banks that dominate the banking industry. 96% of the profit pool in the South African industry is actually dominated by these five banks. But South Africa still has a very large underserved population. And so the question at the heart of our business was, could we launch banking solutions for South Africa and other emerging markets that provided access to people? So products that are cheap enough for them to use, that are integrated into their lifestyles, into their day-to-day living, and that products that are not intimidating, that they can enjoy using. And we started that journey in 2012, me and my business partner, Chad van der Walt, founded the business then. And we spent the first years actually providing our products as a sort of banking as a service, white label banking as a service to mobile operators and retailers. But our dream was always to start our own bank under our own brand. And so we eventually, after sort of six years of hard work, about two years back, we actually launched the first Time Bank, which was in South Africa. Time Bank has been going now for two years and a month. We've got 3 million customers now on the book. In the last 30 days, we've made money from 60% of the 3 million customers. So 60% of them are active on the platform in the last 30 days. And we're very excited about it. I think, Miguel, the most maybe unique aspect of Time Bank, when you compare it to the other digital banks, you know, you think about the Monzos and the Revoluts and the Starlings of this world in Europe, for instance, is that we don't only operate purely in the mobile or in the digital world. We actually have somewhat of a hybrid model where we integrate the bank into retail environments. So if you're a Time Bank customer, you'll find that 
the best way to get a bank account is actually at a kiosk inside a retail store. And about 85% of our 3 million customers actually didn't onboard online, although we have an online channel, they actually onboarded in the retail store. So they go to a digital kiosk in one of a thousand retail stores where we have kiosks. They open a bank account there in about three and a half minutes, a fully KYC bank account. They get a digital card issued to them. And so the kiosk is almost like the sales and service agent inside a branch, but at a fraction of the cost. And then from there, if they want to deposit money into their account, they can walk over to the closest toll point or cash register checkout point inside the retail store, and they can deposit money there. And so what that has done is it actually replicated the physical distribution aspects of banking at an extremely low cost, but with a footprint that actually beats the biggest banks in South Africa in terms of places where you can deposit money and places where you can uh, get a bank account. And what that's done for us, it's actually created a digital bank that is not just for digital natives. You know, so many digital banks, they for millennials or they for people who are very much sort of uh, live their lives in the digital world. But in markets like Africa and Southeast Asia, somewhere between 95 and 98% of transactions don't happen online. They still happen in the physical retail world. And so our logic in time is, if you want people to become, over time, digital bank users, you have to start in the physical world. You know, there's an old Sufi saying, you can only walk from where you stand. And 98% of transactions stand in the physical retail environment, not in the digital world. And our passion is to take people on that journey from the physical retail world into the digital world. That's fascinating. I don't think we've seen too many models like that. But uh, I mean, the fact that you have 3 million clients in, in less than three years, it's a recognition that meeting the client where the client is, is a strategy that's working. How about the agents, I guess? How are you partnering with your network of agents? The art and the science of partnering with retailers is one that we've learned through close collaboration with retailers over many years. And the key here is to make it really worth the retailer's while to participate in the ecosystem. So our partners typically are sort of retail chains, sort of grocery stores typically, uh, but we've also partnered with pharmacies and we can essentially also partner with other kinds of retail stores. Any retailer that has a lot of food flow and has relatively robust toll systems where we can integrate to create real-time cash deposits and withdrawals. And what we find is that the value for the retailer often is in us bringing more footfall into the store, um, us helping decash their tolls. So there's actually value for them in sort of having our customers use the toll for cash deposits and cash withdrawals. But then over time, a really exciting part of the relationship is in sharing data and analytics. So retailers have data that are extremely valuable for banks. And banks have data that retailers on their own cannot have access to. And the combination of those data sets for both parties are very important. And for us, it's very important because over time, it will drive our cost of risk in the bank down. And maybe one thing to mention, it must always be worth your agent or your retail partner's financial while to do business with you. And so being relatively generous and sharing some of the economic spoils of the bank 
with the retailer is also key to success. Fascinating. Super interesting. And one thing I, I wanted to learn more about, Kuhn, is, uh, now correct me if I'm wrong, but, but you have a couple of larger corporate shareholders. Is that the case? Right? And we've talked to a few digital banks and you know that, that's not always the structure. So I wanted to understand if you, you think there are any key differences versus you know being standalone or, or having a, a corporate shareholder. Miguel, we can speak for hours about the entrepreneur's quest for capital and what would be the ideal shareholder format. I think we've been very lucky in our shareholders. Our majority shareholder, our biggest shareholder at 57%, is an investment fund called African Rainbow Capital. They permanent capital. And actually, the bulk of their investors are ordinary people and community groups in South Africa. So we think of our ultimate investors not in the case of African Rainbow Capital as a large institution, but we think about the ordinary people and the communities that actually invest in there as our ultimate shareholders. And then our second largest shareholder is a private equity venture capital asset manager called Apis Partners, and they're a classic growth capital provider. They vary, so they'll be at the end of this round at about 18% or so, and they're very useful because they push us hard for returns. And you have to find that balance between making the world a better place, empowering people, loving your customers, and running a business that, uh, that drives towards real value creation for shareholders to continue to attract capital. And they've got great networks in. So we're actually really happy with having a growth equity investor in the pool, adding a lot of value. And then the management is the, still the third largest shareholder. Um, so me and my co-founder and the management team is the third largest shareholder. So that format works for us. But I do think we can talk a lot about the kind of business you want to build and who you want to attract as investor, uh, because there's certainly pros and cons to, to all of them. I think the big challenge that one has in banking is that it's a capital-intensive business. So if you're one of those entrepreneurs who want to maintain, continue to own more than 50% of the business, not advise you to start with banking, to do banking, unless you start with a lot of money in your back pocket. Yeah, and speaking of that, you you now have a lot of money in the pocket of time because we're talking on the heels of a $100 million round, right? Maybe talk a bit about the fundraising process. I mean, fintech for Africa specifically right now is a hot word. So I'm sure you experienced some of that during fundraising, but it, it's also got to be challenging. So Maybe tell us a little bit about the fundraising process and then how you plan to use this investment. Yeah, Miguel, I would say that raising capital for Africa-heavy fintech in 2020 was the most difficult thing I've done in my entire career. The timing was terrible. When we raised the money, we were in the depths of our J-curve, um, growing fast, but also burning a lot of cash. It was really tough. And we realized something about the structure of um, fintech funding in Africa, which is there's a lot of money for small startups. There's quite a lot of money available for small startups. There's 
money available for large late-stage businesses, but there is a real lack of investors in that space of people trying to do something at scale, but early early phase. And and uh, and one understands that you know, sort of Africa is maybe one of those places where one would prefer to take small bets rather than big bets in high-risk early-stage businesses. But there's a real gap there in the market. So it's been it has been an extremely tough journey to get that capital raise done. We're very pleased that we were able to get it done. And one of the ways in which we got it done was to accelerate the internationalization of the business. So we believe that, you know, investors want to see some hedge in the risk profile of a business like this. And we were very blessed to have closed the deal with the Gokongwe family in the Philippines uh, to um, start our second bank in the Philippines. The bank will be called GoTime. And um, with, uh, so Go for Gokongwe plus time is GoTime. And we right now in the midst of designing and building the GoTime bank in the Philippines. And I think showing our ability to internationalize and over time, to some extent, balance the risk um, sort of out of Africa into Southeast Asia was an important part of getting that uh, capital raise done. On your question, what are we going to do with the money? There are two big jobs. The first job is to get to profitability in South Africa. We watch other digital banks in the world. and Very few digital banks get to break even under five years. Most take six to eight years. We don't have that luxury. So we're on the clock to get Time Bank to break even in under four years. And so that's the first thing we'll use the money for. The second is to get the first phase of the Philippines done. So to get the Philippines Bank through build to launch. So those are the two big things that we're going to be applying our Series B 100 million to. We want to talk about the international expansion, but uh, before we go there, when you talk about you know achieving profitability as a bank, something that comes to mind immediately is uh, is credit, right, and and the availability of credit, and, and that's how the successful and profitable neobanks have done it, right, through a mix of credit and, and debit. Maybe tell us about some of the credit products that you're providing to your customer and do envision. Yeah, Miguel, I think that the challenge we all have with credit is that it, again, is a very capital-hungry product. So whenever we do our analysis of lifetime value of customers and embedded value of the business, there's no doubt that something like a longer-dated term loan is the product that will give you the best lifetime value. The problem you have with it and particularly with IFRS 9 and the other accounting rules that apply to a growing lending book, it's really punishing on your capital. So what that means is that a bank like us, we have to think more, a little bit more creatively around how we do credit. Your starting point in your question is correct. You're never going to run a hugely successful and profitable digital bank without doing credit. What we're doing to get there without a huge capital impact is two things. The first thing is that we focus on high-frequency, shorter-dated lending. Our flagship lending product is a product called More Time that is a buy-now-pay-later product. So it's instant till-point credit where we essentially make our money from a merchant discount, very similar to the likes of uh, Klarna, um, Afterpay, and, and these guys. And that is a very capital-efficient lending product. 
So that's the first thing we do. We go for shorter dated, high frequency lending. Uh, that's much more capital efficient and longer dated lending. The second thing we do is we partner with other people who have big balance sheets already to leverage off their balance sheets in the initial phases. As an example, our credit card, which we're launching in a few months, we're doing with RCS Day, the BNP Paribas subsidiary here in South Africa. And we sort of have a deal with them where initially the product essentially runs on RCS's balance sheet and we can participate in the balance sheet as the balance sheet grows. So, uh, yeah, one just has to think a bit more creatively about how to get into lending if you're not in a market where, where your funders are willing to just throw a lot of capital at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that is certainly a, a challenge for emerging market digital banks, right? So, from one emerging market to another, right? So, maybe talk a bit about the international expansion, right? And I'm guessing you see a lot of parallels in between both markets, right? Uh, how are you approaching the, the expansion and then you know, how are you going to divide, I guess, the duties of management? Miguel, we can talk for hours around this whole question of strategy around international expansion, but the way we think about it is that it begins with really understanding what is it that you have in your business that's unique, that is exportable, and that would add real value to underserved customers in in similar markets. And we believe that what is most unique about our model is our our retail integration capability, this ability to get customers and serve customers inside retail environments, together with our data and analytics capability. And that really addresses the two big problems in expanding banking to underserved segments, which is operating cost and the cost of risk. And so... To give you a sense, our operating cost in the market like South Africa is roughly a tenth already at the scale of only 3 million customers, a tenth of the cost per customer of the incumbents. So that's the operating cost piece. The second piece is this piece around data and analytics and how to use that to reduce the cost of risk and penetrate risk segments of customers that normal banks using normal credit scoring methodologies can't do. And if you can get those things right, you have a real sustainable advantage. So when we thought about international expansion, as we've been thinking about it for many years, we're really looking for markets where this particular operating model and these strengths will come into their own. So really, we look at three things. We're looking for markets with large underserved populations, ideally more than 50 million people in the market and with a highly young and underserved um, and digitally savvy population. The second thing is we're looking for progressive regulators. We run our entire stack in the cloud. When we launched, we were the only bank that we knew of in the world that ran the entire bank on the cloud, and we use AWS Cloud on a member core banking system. And we will not go to a market that doesn't accept that technology setup for where the policy doesn't allow that. And we've actually stood back from markets where the regulator has made that difficult for us. So progressive regulator is extremely important. And then the third thing is we're looking for really good partners, partners who have access to retail distribution networks and who share our passion for democratizing banking. And we were very lucky in the Philippines to find the JG Summit and the Gokongwe family. They have a great track record in democratizing things like air travel, 
pharmacies and other things. And so they really get what we're talking about when we say in the Philippines, there are 100 million people, 75% of them are completely unbanked. They've never had a bank account. So they get what we say if we say we're passionate about serving those customers. So I think the point that you mentioned on progressive regulators is extremely interesting. So talking about, I guess, your partnership and your experience working with the government, the regulator, specifically in, in South Africa, right? You've been doing this for a while. Have you noticed, I guess, more willingness to work with fintechs, work with technology companies? Are you seeing this from the regulator? Yes, you know, I think the starting point is that in any engagement with regulators, I think it's extremely important to start from a perspective of empathy with the regulator's agenda and the regulator's priorities. And typically, you know, in terms of banking regulators, they sort of have two jobs. Their first and most important job is to keep everyone safe, to guard against systemic risk. Their second job is often to help expand banking, get more competition into banking, expand banking services, and uh, make sure that consumers and banking users are well looked after. And I think that the mistake that I see entrepreneurs making and even big banks making is they start from an attitude of the regulators, my enemy. How do I get around them? How do I outsmart them? How do I do something that they can't regulate? What we've done um, is from the very start, we've taken a partnership approach to the regulator. And we've said, listen, we've actually got an alignment of interest around financial inclusion. Let's use that thing that we have in common as a basis for developing a partnership. And I think as an attitude that's really worked for us, um, other part of the attitude that one always has, you have to have, is some patience. And, you know, there's a saying that the law always follows a respectful distance behind technology. And that is, even today, that is still true. And so being willing to work with a regulator, either to interpret regulation differently or to convince them to allow you an ex exemption to test new things, or if needs be to change regulation, that's part of the, that's part of the process. But frankly, some regulators are better than others. And figuring out whether you have an open-minded, progressive regulator to start with is quite important. And we were lucky in South Africa that we do have that. We have really a sophisticated regulator here. And we see the same in the Philippines. Um, very, very thoughtful, sophisticated regulator. And uh, to answer your question about is it getting better, I think it's getting better. I think every, every year I see regulators trying harder, thinking more deeply and sort of getting with a program of transformation. And I guess uh, on that same note of, you know, while regulation is getting better, how about the entrepreneurial ecosystem in South Africa, right? I imagine it's also evolving and then, you know, hopefully getting bigger and better. I mean, you know, we're talking to a few potential guests from South Africa, so there's clearly quite a few things going on. Yes, uh, I'm very excited about it, Miguel. I think that at some levels, the barriers to entry are still very high uh, in an economy like South Africa. I, I think when we started building a bank, we had no idea how tough it would be to break into the banking industry in particular. And things like very complex payment systems, very laborious process for integrating into the different payment protocols and so on, 
still makes it extremely difficult, for instance, to do something like a digital bank. But where we're seeing the barriers to entry, I think, coming down very rapidly is for more specific fintechs, fintechs focused on specific problems or specific niches. And I think the area, some people refer to it as embedded finance, contextual finance, the ability to find a technology solution for a specific segment or specific use case, you know, or a specific context. I think that there's huge potential. And I can see in South Africa that these winners are starting to emerge. So I keep a page, a list of every category of financial services products in South Africa. And in every one of that list, I have my little one to three players I'm betting on becoming better than the incumbents in the next three to five years. And so I can see a picture here where in a country like South Africa, the current banks and the current insurers are not beaten by some other other oil tanker coming out and outracing them in the open sea like a uh, team of uh, 50 speedboats all attacking them from different directions. And I think if we play smart, we can start collaborating with each other, the new generation of fintechs. Collectively, I think there's a very interesting game that can be played in outsmarting the old economy players by just being better at every single piece of the puzzle and being able to deliver those to customers in a, in a cohesive way. Yeah, and Kun, so <laughs> before we started recording, I was mentioning that part of our audience for this podcast is entrepreneurs like, like yourself, right? And people who are getting started and many of them are not in a location like Silicon Valley, right? They are in emerging markets around the world and they not necessarily meet a lot of people like you every day, right? So if we could get some, you know, some reflections and, and some advice from your journey as an entrepreneur over the last few years, right? What would you like to share as a founder? Miguel, it's an intimidating question. I think the first thing I'd like to say is don't take my advice seriously. I'm also just trying. <laughs> but I think from my own experience, the first thing I would say to, to young entrepreneurs is don't start with the question, how do I make as much money as possible? Start with the question, how do I make the world a better, better place? How do I change people's lives for the better? Particularly for fintech entrepreneurs, um, people are not excited about banking or insurance or any of these things. They are boring to everyone except banking nerds like you and me. But if you can find a way to improve somebody's life, help them unfold their potential as a human being, make the world a better place, then you've got a starting point. And I would say the next question, again, is not how do I make as much money as possible from this, but who are the people or kinds of people I want to take on this journey with me? And once you've got that, once you've actually got a compelling vision, then often the other stuff fall in place. The funders will come. Because there is a lot of money in the world that want to see transformation happening. There are a lot of people in the world, wealthy people and institutions, who know that the world's not working well for most people. There's seven and a half billion people in the world, in the world, and the system is not working well for a lot of them. Figure out how you can help 
those people, how you can help the system work better, and then the other aspects of building your business fall into place, I think, much more, much more consistently behind that vision. I'll say one other thing that I wouldn't have said uh, when I started this business, but eight years after eight years of hard slog, I would say this, that you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room to build a successful startup, but you probably have to be the most persistent, the most dogged person in the room. You know, the, they say that the word, the French word that entrepreneur comes from means an unreasonable person. You have to be ready to be the unreasonable person constantly for a very long time. And uh, I read something the other day uh, that it takes a lifetime of commitment to become an overnight success. And uh, I'm not yet an overnight success, but I certainly can test to the lifetime of commitment piece. Outstanding. I think uh, a lot of people will take your advice very seriously because uh, that, was, that was great advice. So could last question before we let you go, we always like to hear a bit about our, of the personalized side of our guests. So are there any hobbies that come to mind and any favorite things that you like to do outside of Time Bank? Miguel, the thing about running a startup like this is that, uh, you know, you become an extremely boring person after a while because you just work and work and work. I think my real interest of mine is sculpting. I used to do probably pretty average sculptures, but loved uh, particularly uh, African stone carving and wood carving, find it very interesting. And uh, there's something about a sculpture's ability to express not just the physical form of something, but something about the underlying nature of something. Uh, you know, if you look at like Redeur's um, Balzac, it's sort of, you don't know really whether it is, you know, figurative sculpting or abstract, but there's something about the nature of things that shine through there. So very excited about that kind of thing. And then my, my little secret, what's the right word, sort of guilty secret is that I love TED Talks. It's like the quickest, cheapest way to just be confronted with new ideas and things that people are passionate about. And so uh, my wife often catches me watching TED Talks on my iPad when I should be working. <laughs> yeah, I am a fan as well. I remember back when TED Talks got started, they were in, obviously most of them or all of them were in English. And in my mind, it's like, well, these are great ideas. We need, to, uh, we need to translate them. So I remember adding subtitles to some TED Talks, you know, a thousand years ago. But now, you know, it's all automatic. It's all translated. So that's, that's great. And on sculpting, I think we, we haven't had uh, too many sculptors on, on, the, on the show. So maybe, maybe you can send us a picture of one of your, uh, one of your favorite creations and we'll add it on the, on the post. Thank you. Lovely speaking to you. No, my pleasure. And, and thanks for joining us. I mean, really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. You're always invited to yes. stop by, to come back or visit Wharton in person. Right. And, and thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, 
Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.